The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesdays from 10 to 11, live Eastern Time, and at the end of the day, we archive the show. Joining me this morning is Susan Cain, New York, New York Times bestselling author, and her new book is Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. She's a self-titled introvert herself, Harvard Law School graduate, and she argues that our culture holds a bias towards extroverts while undervaluing the strength of introverts. Uh, my second guest is also uh, the author of a, his new book, and actually he and his sister collaborated on this book, Dr. Gary Malone, a psychiatrist, and his award-winning writer sister, uh, Dr. Gary Malone and uh, Susan Mary Malone. Uh, the title of their new book is What's Wrong with My Family? And in their book, they share some of the qualities of a healthy family and offer a few tips on how to improve the relationships in your own family. But first, Susan Kane, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Susan. Thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I know you say that you are uh, an introvert, but I actually listened to your TED Talk. Uh, yesterday, which was fantastic, and uh, Thank you, you talked for seven minutes, and it's mesmerizing, so you're kind of like, maybe you aren't so much of an introvert as you say, but anyway, let's talk about the book. Um, the Quiet, it's really a, the, the Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking, and I guess you say that, um, let's define introverts first, and what's the difference between introvert, extrovert, um, so that we know what we're talking about. Um, sure, um, yeah. sure. And, and yeah, you know, it's interesting that you said, oh, well, you gave a TED Talk, so maybe you're not so much of an introvert, <clears throat> excuse me, but um, really introverts can have strong social skills, and I think that one of the big myths about introversion is, uh, you know, I, I think people assume you must be talking about um, people who are true hermits um, or who don't care about or like other people, and really nothing could be further from the truth. The real difference between introverts and extroverts is how they respond to stimulation. So introverts feel at their most alive and their most energized when they're in environments that are less stimulating, by which I don't mean intellectual stimulation, but rather just less stuff coming at them. So they'd rather have, as I would, um, they'd rather have a glass of wine with a close friend as opposed to going to a big party full of strangers. Um, whereas extroverts really crave more stimulation in order to feel at their most alive. And when they're not getting enough of it, they start to feel bored and listless and, and, and listless and understimulated. Um, so okay, so, and so you say that it's not, it's not about culture. being antisocial, it's about being differently social. You say that we live in a culture of extroversion yeah. and that that's not necessarily and that we give a lot of credit for extra being an extrovert and that there's sort of this myth that you need in order to be successful in business, 
in uh, in our culture really that you need to be an extrovert. And I guess, and you say that one third of us, or approximately one third of us, are introverts. I'm not one of them. I'm an extrovert, or I wouldn't be doing radio shows. Um, but so introverts kind of get a bad rap, and so in our society, and they are actually. I guess you talk about the fact that they are make good leaders. They they, they have you know that they're not you don't necessarily have to be an extrovert, extrovert to be a good leader, either a CEO of a company or the head of a country. Let's talk about that. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, th- this is again one of the other myths about introversion. You you would think it's a kind of conventional wisdom idea that well, if you're an introvert, you're not going to be much of a leader. But really, nothing could be further from. The truth, and this is one of the things that I look at in my book, Quiet. Um, I, I looked at some of the great leaders of the 20th century, um, you know, from Eleanor Roosevelt to Gandhi to Rosa Parks, and <clears throat> excuse me, all of these people were described as quiet, as shy, as soft-spoken, as modest, as unassuming, um, and and there seems to be something very potent about somebody who ascends to a leadership position, not because. Not, not kind of for leadership for its own sake, not because they enjoy um, controlling other people or controlling events, but rather because they're so engaged in a mission or a cause or an organization that, that they just kind of rise to the top by virtue of, of who they are and the skills that they bring. And we see this also in Silicon Valley, where if you look at Larry Page, for example, at Google, or Marissa Mayer at, at Yahoo, um, the CEOs of those companies, Larry Page and Marissa Mayer are, are both people who... Um, have described themselves as being kind of on the quiet and awkward side, but but when they are um, engaged in 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 talking about things they really care about or in the, the futures of their companies, they 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 are leaders. They are natural leaders in those settings. So I think we have to really expand um, what we think of leadership as meaning. All right, so you're not pitting introverts against extroverts. You're just saying if one third of us are introverts, we have a lot to to offer, and we need to take a exactly. look at that. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the analogy that I would make is to the women's movement in the 1950s or 1960s, where I think uh, I think most women at that time who were advocating for women's rights, they weren't saying down with men. They were saying we want equality. You know, we want a level playing field. We want a world of yin and yang because we think everybody will be better off in such a in such a world. Um, and I'm saying the exact same thing here. Um, I, I actually think the best case scenario is where introverts and extroverts are not only equally valued, but are, have really learned to work well together so that they can use their complementary strengths. Um, and a great example of this is at Facebook, where you have the introverted CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, working alongside the very extroverted COO, Sheryl Sandberg, and they, they have formed an incredibly effective partnership um, where each has a very different domain. Uh, Susan, why, why do you think that we kind of started honing in on this extrovert personality is the only way to be if you want to be successful. Um, I, I know you talk about character versus personality, and we used to value character at some point in our history, not long ago, yeah, and then we yeah. switched to you've got to have a great personality. So what, what does that mean? I mean, how, and how did that come about? Well, it's, it's such an interesting cultural history that, that I um, found in my research and, and wrote about. Basically, in the 19th century and before that, we, we, we were basically an agricultural economy. So we were living in small towns, working alongside people we had known all our lives. And so what we valued back then was character because you wanted to be able to depend on your neighbors. So, so we cared about, is this person a good person? What, what is their inner life like? What is their inner state like? Is this a person of honor? But 
then at the turn of the 20th century, we saw the rise of big business and of people moving from the countryside to the cities. And, and suddenly now they're working with strangers and they're facing the question of, okay, how do I present myself at a job interview? What kind of impression do I make um, when I'm paying a sales call? And so suddenly we entered what historians call the culture of personality, where what matters is, you know, are you magnetic? Are you dynamic? Are you forceful? Um, are you alluring? These kinds of things. And that's really the, the cultural heritage that we're still living with today. So how is that not good? Let's say, let's say today, I know you mentioned, I think in the beginning of our conversation, you talked about Rosa Parks and Gandhi, and those were introverts, and look at the impact they had on society. Let's take some, I'm really interested in somebody who's living right now. Let's, uh, President Obama, let's take, you know, and kind of analyzing him in terms of introvert, extrovert, or Hillary Clinton, or leaders of today, well, you, I guess you did mention Mark Zuckerberg, um, and, uh, well, we didn't mention Bill Gates. Oh, Larry Page, Mayor, Larry Page, Marissa Mayer, Bill yeah. Gates. Yep, yep. Okay, so let's talk about President Obama. Is he an introvert or an extrovert? Or I would say President Obama is an introvert. Um, I don't think he's a shy introvert, by the way, and it's worth making that distinction. You know, shyness is more about the fear of social judgment, and introversion is more about the preference for these lower stimulation environments and for having a kind of a reflective temperament. And... Um, and President Obama, I would say, is very much an introvert. And in fact, he, one of the ways in which he kind of got into trouble in his first term and during the election campaign, people sometimes criticized him for not um, partaking more in the Washington scene of schmoozing and backslapping and cocktail parties. He's, he's not so interested in that. Um, but and, and so that that you could say for a politician is the downside of being an introvert. But I think the ways in which his introversion has served him well is. Um, you know, you feel when he gives a talk as if it's something he has really sat down and thought about and reflected on. Um, and even his decision-making style, I, I had the chance once to chat with one of his top aides from uh, his first term. And she told me that when he first got to office, he, he told his staff that he wanted five minutes of quiet time in between each meeting. And, um, and they had never heard of this before because apparently usually presidents will just ricochet from one meeting to the other. But he said, you know, how am I going to have time to think and process what I just learned without that five minutes? You know, it's interesting as you're describing his style as an introvert, and then as you're talking, I'm thinking about Bill Clinton, who I would see as an extrovert, equally yes, as absolutely. bright, equally as empower, you know, is empowering, and uh, absolutely, but, very but with a very different style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and as somebody like a Bill Clinton, I think has a completely opposite set of um, pros and cons or advantages and disadvantages to his temperament as a politician. You know, that the upside is clearly that you know, everything Obama was criticized for, Bill Clinton never would be. You know, he, he loves to go into these networking events and apparently comes out twice as energized as when he entered them. Um, you know, he comes alive when he's meeting people. I, I, you know, I, I think Obama likes that to some degree, too. I, I think he just needs to kind of take a minute and recharge afterwards in a way that a Clinton doesn't. Um, the downside of being somebody like a Clinton is you know, the kind of trouble that Clinton got into um, with the Lewinsky scandal. Uh, that's not the kind of thing that's likely to happen to a President Obama. And, 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 and this is actually typical of sort of the introvert-extrovert difference. One, one of the, it's not just a social difference. It's, it's a difference that gets at how 
you approach risk and caretaking and that kind of thing. So extroverts are much more um, the people who can easily seize the day and just do it, and, and they have that wonderful quality. The downside is they tend to be more impulsive. They tend to sometimes take risks that they shouldn't be taking. Um, so that, but with the and, downside and I, and I think, of, I'm going to interrupt you because would the downside of an introvert be somebody who perhaps should be taking a risk that they don't take, and so they they hold back because they think about it too much, they go over it too much, they ponder it too much, um, and it could be any one of us who have that kind of a personality. And so we don't accomplish things because we're, we're the other side, we're a 180 from that, from taking risks that we shouldn't be taking. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I think that with all personality traits. Um, they have their upsides and their downsides. It kind of just depends on which way you look at them. And it helps to be self-aware so that you can temper your own downsides. And it helps, as I was saying before, to partner with someone because, you know, if you know you're the impulsive risk taker, it helps to partner with the person who is the careful, considered one and vice versa. What if you're, as you describe, an ambivert? I took your test, your introvert-expert test, as I'm sure most people who interview you do, and I think I came out somewhat really in the middle, and it has changed and evolved as I've gotten older. I think perhaps I was more extroverted, as more of an extrovert as I was younger, and as I get older, I'm more, as you described in the beginning, wanting to sit down with a glass of wine with a friend or my boyfriend or whomever, rather than being out at the party. Uh, but that kind of has that changes too over time for each individual, I think. Uh, so an ambivert is that the perfect person to be or no? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, as to your point about um, changing over time, you're not alone. All the studies say that uh, that people do tend to become more introverted as they grow older. So I'm not surprised to hear you describe yourself that way. Um, but yeah, ambiverts are the people who fall smack in the middle of the spectrum, the introvert-extrovert spectrum. And yeah, I often think that they have the best of all possible worlds, especially for ambiverts who kind of have control of which way they're acting in a given situation. That's really the best because some all situations right, let's that, offer. Okay, so who's an ambivert? We describe Bill Clinton as the extrovert and Barack Obama as the introvert. Who would you say today who's, you know, a, a world leader um, who you would describe as an ambivert? Oh, Does anyone come to mind? That's a really, really good question. Um, I really don't know. I, you know, I've heard it said that, well, I wonder if Ronald Reagan was that way a little bit because he, he had such an extroverted persona, right, you know, an actor's persona. But people describe him as having been, in truth, a quite private person who, who would really want to go off by himself. So, so maybe him, but I'm not totally sure about that. Yeah, I, mean, as you, I, I think you're right. I think as I'm listening or thinking about some of the speeches he made, I think that's true. He, he would, that's a good description of, a, of an ambivert. Now, Bill Gates views your TED Talk as one of the 13 favorite, his 13 favorite TED Talk. Uh, yeah, and I have favorite. to say, Why that was like that the is? most exciting of all the uh, of all the things that has happened to this book and TED Talk over the last year. Um, Bill Gates naming it that way was the most exciting to me. But why do you think so? I mean, that's that's really, really, um, it is exciting. And but I, I'm just interested. Why? I mean, because he, you know, the TED Talks are. Fan- I mean, I listen to so many of them, and and there's just so many really outstanding, amazing ones. And obviously, yours is too. But why do you think he honed in on yours? I think, you know, he was the leader of a company, right? Um, the leader of a, a creative type of company with lots of people who are designers and programmers and that kind of thing. He himself came up that way. Um, he, he is an introvert himself. So, and, and the point of my TED Talk really was about um, carving out more 
room in our personal lives, but also in our organizational lives for solitude and, and you know, to say, if you want to be creative, um, you need to be taking more time by yourself because that is one, that's the seed of creativity and that, that's especially true for the introverts among us. So I would guess it resonated with him on a personal level, but also as the leader of a company, um, you know, a creator of a company thinking about how to, how, how to maximize innovation and creativity. Yeah, and and speaking about companies and work and education, and you talk about that in your talk, uh, what are we doing in terms of business? Are we giving people the opportunity to be creative, or are we doing just the opposite? No, I I believe that we are doing the opposite. I think we're making a lot of mistakes right now. Um, You know, first of all, we're housing people in open plan offices more and more, the kinds of offices where you have no space of your own, no place to go for, for quiet, for solitude. So people are in these gigantic offices um, you know, that, that are noisy, where they're being interrupted all the time. And, and we know from studies that this is a disaster for productivity and for morale, and people get sick more often. Um, and they're especially hard for introverts who, who need even more that sense of solitude. But, but I, I think they're problematic for everyone. Um, the other thing that we're doing... In business, is we increasingly believe in in the team, the, you know, the, the importance of the team and getting things done. And, and there's some truth to that. Obviously, when people join forces, um, you, you can be much greater than the sum of your parts. But that doesn't mean that the hard work of thinking through a problem or of creating something new, it doesn't mean that that hard work, which which is what actually takes the most hours out of your day that that should be done in a group setting. I mean, I believe the best situation would be for people to kind of go off by themselves to noodle through the really hard stuff and then come together and share what they've found with their teams. And we know from 40 years of research in brainstorming that individuals who brainstorm by themselves produce more ideas and better ideas than groups of people brainstorming together. And, uh, and as I say, we've known this for decades, and yet for some reason, businesses don't pay attention to these findings. What, well, I have two questions. One, or I have, like, maybe the first one is a statement, but then maybe that says a lot for working at home and spending two or three hours working at home, which is, which is also a trend because people can use their computers and you can run a business from at home and you can be, uh, and actually you can be a manager in some companies and still be at home. So that's a, that's, that bode well because then you have an opportunity to be by yourself to be creative and then also perhaps balance that with being in an office situation and or yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I, I do think that that's a promising trend. Um, I, you know, I, I think too that there is value in having the kinds of casual interactions that happen in an office place. So I, I, I think for most companies the ideal solution would be more of a hybrid where People have private space. Um, they have the freedom to go off to a co- coffee shop or to go home, but also to be enough of the time at the office in situations where you know, they're bumping into people at the proverbial water cooler um, because that that exchange of ideas between actual humans face-to-face is also important. So I'm not, I'm not saying you know, do away with all of that. I, I just think we need more of a balance. What are, the, what are business schools teaching? Well, that's an interesting question because business schools increasingly are are um, assigning work to be done in group projects, and um, in, in fact, I, I, in the book, I spend some time at Harvard Business School reporting on, on what it's like there, and really everything there is done as a team. 
Um, if you're someone who likes to work by yourself, like don't don't go to HBS. Um, so, so where do you go if you don't go to HBS? I have a son who just graduated. From, well, not just a couple of years ago from Wharton. I, I that I think, and each one of the business schools, I guess, have kind of a different way of doing business or teaching business. Or you know, yeah, and I think different. I think Wharton probably is a little less uh, group focused than than an HBS is. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think this is a problem at business schools across the board because you know, you know there. Well, uh, it, it does vary from school to school. There are some of the schools that um, draw sort of more quantitative finance types, and I think those tend to be a little bit more introvert-friendly. Um, but in general, the population at a business school, it, it tends to be a highly extroverted population of students. So they are being trained and groomed in an environment that's not really thinking that much about what introverts might need Yet they're going to go out and man- you know go out into the real world and be managing workforces full of introverts. Particularly, the creative um, people in their companies are going to be not all introverts, but a lot of them. So I think we need to be kind of getting out from our standard models and really taking this stuff into account. Susan, now I would like to switch to kind of the personal stuff because you talk about. Um are you? I think you mentioned it in the TED Talks and your books that you're married to an extrovert, so you created this kind of like ideal situation. You're the introvert, he's the extrovert. Um, but what about parenting? Let's say, and I think you have, what, two children? Yep. Mm-hmm. Two sons. I have two three sons. sons. Yeah. And as, yep. as mothers, we know that each one of them is different, and you may have two extroverts, two introverts. You may have a combination. I have a combination of all three, and all three of mine, but... So what about parents recognizing their kids as either an introvert or an extrovert at a young age? Um, what do you do? Do you encourage the introvertism or the extrovertism, or how does that work? Well, I think before you even think about what you do in given situations, the, the first key is to really, really um, take delight in your kid, regardless of their temperament. And uh, not just regardless, but I'd say because of their temperament. Um, so for parents of introverted children, that can be sometimes a hard thing to do because the messages come so early on um, that you should be kind of pushing your children out there. Um, and, and, and But your children are going to be getting their first cues about their own self-worth through the way you think of them. So, so the first thing you need to do is kind of your own psychic homework. Um, then I would say when it comes to sort of concrete tips of what to do, first of all, um, the, the final chapter of my book is all about how to raise introverted children. So if you're a parent listening to this, I would just encourage you to look at that because there's much more there than I'll have time to tell you right now. Um, but one piece of advice is to really find the things that your children love to do um, you know, help them find their passion, which sounds like hackneyed advice, but it's through it's through the things that they love that, that a child is going to overcome their initial hesitancy about joining a group or plunging in or that kind of thing. Um, you know, like if your child loves to run, you, you'll find like that when they're running happily, they're not really thinking about the fact that they don't want to join a group, let's say. Um, and, and think about the activities that really suit them. So, you know, if, if all the kids in your in your um, area are playing soccer, but your kid doesn't like soccer and they really like taekwondo, which is a more um, sort of cerebral and quieter activity, let them do quiet taekwondo and gain a sense of mastery and self confidence through that. 
I also think, and I think this is important to mention, and you mentioned kind of the outside world of people, you know, if soccer is a big thing in your community but your kid doesn't want to do that and they want to do taekwondo, do it. But I think also, and maybe as a social worker and seeing families in this situation, is that sometimes you get a family of extroverts and then one of the... Parents are both extroverts. Two of the kids are extroverts, and then you get the third one who's an introvert. And it can be very difficult for that child if he's kind of or she being forced into a to get out there and play sports and do all these things that you know extroverts do. So you have to be real. I think it's read the last chapter of your book, obviously, but you know be real careful that, as you say, that 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 child, that kid gets to do something that really fits his or her personality yes. as an introvert. Yes. If they want to play yes. the cello, let them play. They don't have to Absolutely. play soccer. Absolutely. And I have to say, I, I'm, just, I, I'm almost like jumping up and down listening yeah. to you because I, I can't I can't emphasize enough what you were saying because I get, I get so many letters from people, I mean hundreds, thousands of letters from people, um, and I hear often um, from people who were exactly what you said. They grew up in families of all extroverts and they were the lone introvert and they felt like a real fish out of water and um, misunderstood and they carry it with them for the rest of their lives. You know, I'm often hearing from 40 or 50-year-olds who are still carrying around this pain um, and it doesn't have to be that way. I would encourage you, um, if you were a parent in this situation, first of all, I understand your sense of bafflement about your quieter child because he or she is so different from you. Um, and it can be hard to know what to do, um, I would encourage you to look at that child. Like, imagine you had four boys and you suddenly get a girl or vice versa. Um, how excited you would be to get, you know, something a little bit different. And, wow. Or terrified. Um, or terrified, I guess that's true. Um, or maybe a mix of, of the two. But really to, to look at what are the treasures and the delights of, that this child has brought you. And now you're going to get to learn about cello instead of soccer or, or what have you. I, that, that's well said, and I think you know. And, and I, I, I could go on talking to you for the, the next hour to tell you the truth. But this has been a great interview, uh, and I want to make sure that people know where the, the power, uh, quiet, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. Susan Kane, that you can get your book online, bookstores everywhere. And Susan, before we say goodbye, uh, you have a website or a website that listeners can go to. Uh, let's mention that. Yes, I do. Thank you. Um, okay, so the website is thepowerofintroverts.com. And you can also find me on Facebook. I have an author page under my name, Susan Kane, C-A-I-N, Susan Kane author. Um, I'm also on Twitter, and my handle is at Susan Kane. And um, yeah, as far as the book, it's on sale everywhere. So wherever, wherever you wherever, like to go shopping, wherever you are, you can buy it. Find it. Yeah, <laughs> you can, yeah, yeah, you can. Uh, great. And I'm waiting for your next book. Thanks so much for being on Thank the show this so morning. Thank you so much. I really yeah. enjoyed it. I did too. It was a real pleasure. Um, we're going to just take a short break. And uh, when we come back, we have Dr. Gary Malone and his sister, Susan Mary Malone. And they collaborated on a book together called What's Wrong with My Family? Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to Voice America Variety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 Eastern Time Live, and at the end of the day, we archive the show. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Gary Malone and his sister, Susan Mary Malone. Dr. Malone is a associate clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Texas Southwestern, and his sister, Susan Mary Malone, is a award-winning writer and editor and has written several books. Uh, their book that they have collaborated on that we're going to be talking about today is What's Wrong With My Family? I think most of us who are in a family and we're all in some kind of a family have always asked that, that question. I know I've asked that question. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the qualities of a healthy family and offer a few tips on how to improve the relationships in our in our own families. Welcome to the show. I'm going to say Gary and Susan, nice to have you on. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you very much for having us. And what a great show. I loved your previous guest. Thank and, you. you yeah, know, she was terrific, and you guys are going was, to be yeah, she was terrific, and that's a great segue into what we're doing, too. Yes, it is. That's one of the things that we really, really focus on is that every person in the family is his or her own individual and has to be treated that way. And, Gary, you are a psychiatrist, so I assume that you've had lots of experience yes. uh, with families, with individuals, and families who have a lot or define themselves as having a lot of problems. But one of the things that you say or that you both say in the book, I guess, um, at the heart of almost all Bulgaria's patients, uh, uh, issues, the problems are issues that stem from the family, um, which as a social worker, I've always thought this, or, you know, that's kind of the Freudian, um, I guess, approach, you would say. Um, what makes, and I'll, either one of you can answer this question, or, is, is your approach to dealing with families different than, say, this, the, the Freudian approach or what we've traditionally known as, you know, you have to work out those issues in your own family if you're going to be a healthy family or raise a healthy family? Well, you know, Catherine, it's, uh, I'm, a, I'm actually a classically trained Freudian analyst. I'm, I'm a teaching analyst in the Dallas Institute. But I've been doing this for a long time, so like you have too, and I've, I've worked in hospitals. I've seen uh, uh, people analysis and therapy. I've done couples. I still run groups. I'll, I'll run a group later this morning. Uh, and what, what I usually, and this is just over my years of practice, that, um, you know, it's one thing to, to try to separate a person out and go, we're going to look only at your psyche. But, you know, many things go into what makes a person's life the way it is. And the, the question in our field is, uh, why does someone think, feel, and act the way they do? You have a genetic, biological component, a tremendous component about what happened at your house growing up, and then your own volition as you get older. And what people don't realize when they come to see me is that uh, they'll say, gee, I'm having trouble, I don't feel good about myself, I'm having trouble with my wife and raising my kids. Inevitably, it goes back to unresolved issues from their family of origin. 
And so if you do the history on this, we, we go back and we have people, uh, I, I people look at what it's like growing up in their family, how they were treated, how they feel about themselves as a person, and they're always surprised to find out they basically recreated that family in their current life. And that, that's probably the, the, the heart of the book, is that uh, unless you stop and look at your history growing up, you will recreate that family. And if it was Leave it to Beaver the Huxtables, that's great, but that's a very small percentage. Most people have some unfinished business and didn't grow up in a perfect family. And well, I think the expectation for this Leave it to Beaver family uh, puts us all in a kind of compromising positions because none of us live up to what we consider the Leave it to Beaver family. And so the expectation is really false, and I think that gets into trouble as well. Um, so, Susan, I mean, you talk specifically about qualities of a healthy family. Uh, you know, one of them that you mentioned is showing love. You know, we make the assumption that all families show love. Is, is that a, but they apparently don't, or, or people coming, growing up in certain families don't feel like they've been loved, maybe even if they have been loved. And, Kevin, that's a great point, and it's so true. You know, especially in, in a generation of people, I think in, in more recent generations, there has been much more focus on showing affection and telling people that, that they're loved. In many generations up until this point, that wasn't the case. And, in fact, you know, I, I don't know how many people have talked to me and said, you know, specifically, not always, but my father never told me he loved me. And I was supposed to just sort of get it from, you know, that he provided for us and and took care of the family and that kind of thing. And, you know, that's all good, and you do, actions do speak louder than words. But when a child does not feel loved, it damages that child's sense of self. And going into adulthood, you know, you're always kind of behind the curve, always trying to find your own self-esteem and find your own self-worth. And that's difficult. So that's just one of the aspects. Um, and that can happen even in an otherwise functioning family. Showing know, love. And I want to ask Gary this question as well to add to what you said, Susan, but you know, there's a lot of, I think, giving lip service to showing love. You know, I, you're, yes. when you're, I mean, I'm sure you travel yes. a lot. You'd be on an airplane or a train. I just got off a plane yesterday, actually. And everybody, the plane lands and everybody's on their cell phone and they're saying, well, he just landed and talking to their loved ones. And they're all going, love you, love you, love you. That's the end of the conversation. But, you know, some <laughs> of it's, it's just talk. You know, and some of it sounds a little bit like doublespeak. Yeah, that's easy to say. I love you, I love you, I love you. But you have to really... We want to emphasize this, I think. You've got to show that love, not just talk about it. Well, and, Catherine, we talk about love. Um, you know, uh, what, what I talk to my patients about is that all of us under stress are become selfish and want to express our selfish wishes. That happens in our families. And I always have to remind people, and it's just an old story, tell them to read, uh, you know, uh, you have to be King Solomon here, you know, that you have to do whatever's necessary to protect the children. That, that's that's the, the purpose of the family. The purpose of the family is not for you to suddenly be in charge or act out you know, your resentment towards somebody else, uh, you're there to make your family work. And you don't have to be the Huxtables or Leave it to Beaver. You be your family. But the, the goal is to make sure you raise uh, emotionally, physically healthy children to 18. And then, oh, by the way, my kids are 28 and 30. You continue to parent young adults. Um, and you, you have unresolved issues. You resolve them on your own. You don't resolve them with your spouse or through your kids. Uh, if you have ghosts from the past, face them yourself. If you can't resolve them, go see a good therapist. Lots of therapists out there. Uh, don't don't carry that to the next generation. Hey, can I just add something on yeah, that? Yeah, go ahead, Susan. Something that you had sort of, it, it was kind of an, uh, just part of what you, you were saying. 
But, you know, so often we talk about that spending time with, with family members is, is so imperative. And what I see when I'm traveling is there may indeed be a family traveling together, but they're all isolated on their own Blackberry. And instead of, you know, they may look over and say, I love you, but then they spend all their focus on, you know, texting someone else. And being involved and being conscious in a family takes takes focus. You, you, you know, you have to actually focus on the other person and listen to them. And I think, we, you know, the age of technology has, has ushered in a time where that's not happening a lot. Well, I was talking about, like you're absolutely right, Susan, and I'll just add another anecdotal kind of example. Uh, and I was in a hotel, and I'm sitting there at, at breakfast and looking around, and there is a family doing exactly, there were three kids, two adults, and I think for one hour they didn't say a word to each other. Everybody was on either their iPad, uh, their cell phone, whatever it was, you know, their, and, uh, and I, I would say, you know, maybe there were a couple words uttered during the whole perhaps one hour, and the rest of it was, a total disconnect. So that's not exactly showing love. But, okay, let's go on to the next one because I think this one is really important that you talk about in healthy families, respects autonomy. Um, who wants to start with that one? In healthy families, we need to respect autonomies. Um, individuals should be encouraged to develop their own personal identity and separate from the family. That, I see, is something is a real issue today with helicopter parents, with even though they may not be talking to each other, they are connected and this whole idea of helping our kids uh, identify themselves and have a personal identity and separate from the family, I think, is an issue. Gary, Catherine, you know, again, uh, sort of, you have to, get to keep your your eye on the on uh, the prize here. The, the goal of the family is to raise autonomous, independent young adults who can take care of themselves. And that's actually, you know, uh, people say, of course, that's what I want to do. But very often you're thinking, well, I want to, I want them when they get older to hang out with me. Uh, I want them to stay, you know, I want to be a, a Vito Corleone. I want a giant family hanging around me and focusing on me. And, in fact, what you want to do is to help them grow into who they are. You know, the whole idea about, you talked in the last segment about the, the introvert child. Uh, uh, whatever child this becomes, uh, you nurture that child and help prepare them to leave home and have their best life. I always remind people of the uh, story of the prodigal son. I think it's kind of a tragedy. It's normal. You leave home, find yourself, come back and have and have something to offer as a peer. Uh, and that's uh, love means allowing the child to grow into who they are and to create their life. It doesn't mean keeping them close to you. And it's not lip service. It's time. It's getting to know that person. It's spending time knowing what they like. Uh, and, you know, uh, it's interesting. Susan and I, uh, we, the student helped me raise my daughters. You know, we, we have an extended family. I grew up really around brothers. I didn't know, I didn't have a clue how to raise girls. I had to learn what they were like and join them. And they teach me about my little pony and this kind of stuff. You have to join their world if you're going to connect with them. And then the goal is you're not raising them to be to hang out with you when they get older. You're raising them to create their lives. If you're lucky, they'll come back and be your friends. Yeah, and they bring all kinds of other new kinds of nourishing things into the whole system. The system doesn't, you know, it, the system kind of falls apart if everybody stays in the system because no new stuff is coming in, no new energy. So I, I think that's, you know, you described that really well. I think, and I think we're seeing a whole lot of that these days. You know, again, this is somewhat of a generational thing, but the, the kids that, that have come to maturity in this generation, I don't know how many of them, how many families I saw where they truly did not want those children to leave. 
And they, you know, the kids grew up with their parents as their, quote, friends instead of their parents. And, you know, even if they go off to college and they, the young adults are coming back in droves and moving mm-hmm. back into the family home. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's economics, it's the job market. Well, you know, there's been a lot of times in our history when um, times were tough job-wise. And adult children didn't move back home back into the family nest. And not that that's a, always a bad thing. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that has become such a trend. And they never, those, these kids never really separated from their family of origin, which as Gary was talking about, you have to do. If you're going to become your own person, an autonomous adult, you have to separate from that family and then come back. Susan, I couldn't agree with you more. I think part of the reason for that, and I, I see that too as a trend and not a good one, not a good one for our society actually or for our country or as, as, uh, for our culture, but I think the parents draw the kids in as, and they draw them in on the premise that it is good for the children. They're helping them out as adults, as you say, maybe financially, mm-hmm. which I don't think is always the case either. I think it's all, it's the parents. I'm a baby boomer, and I think it's the baby boomer. It's really, it's all about me. Look what I can do for my kids. You know, that core, which you, you mentioned, the godfather kind of thing. I, I can rescue them. I can do this. And it's really not about the kids. It's really about the parents. Exactly. Yes. Well, you know, and it's something I, I can speak to that, too, because, you know, uh, I really like having my kids at home. Uh, my wife and I and Susan, as far as the extended family, it felt so good to have them here. Uh, and I always had to remind myself it was not about me. You know, I miss them. They are autonomous young adults. They love me. They connect to me the way young adults connect to me. It's up to me to deal with the fact that I'm lonely since they left. It's not up to them. Um, yeah. And that, uh, then to have a healthy uh, parenting of them and to be their peers, let them become my friend. That's what's supposed to happen. Yeah, it's painful to let go. Painful yes. for the parent. Mm-hmm. And I think we sometimes, and I, I'm kind of maybe going back to my point, is we project that onto the kids. It's not so painful for them. It's painful for us, but yes. best for, yeah, to let them go. Um, what about, and this, I think this is what it's really all about, you talk about healthy families create structure and boundaries. Because I think if we all had the appropriate boundaries, whether in the family, the community, or the country at large, everything would be fine. It's all about boundaries. Let's talk about boundaries, as, as you do in the book. Well, and part of that is, uh, and people lose this, because they go, oh, you call up and go, hi, Howard, I love you, and you went to, to the fair, here's a participant ribbon. No, it's about uh, structure and boundaries. It means that, um, you know, who has what role in this family? Um, uh, what time is dinner? Who's going to wash the dishes? Uh, your job as a kid is to go to school and do the best you can. My job is to be the dad and go to work and come home and hang out with you on Saturdays. Uh, you, that's practice for life. Uh, and it's not limitless. You can't stay up till three in the morning playing video games and then, you know, sleep in and not go to school. Uh, it, it's training for life. It also helps you, uh, get, be self-contained, contain the intensity of your own feelings and, uh, be able, when you do leave, to be comfortable in your own skin. And that gets lost in this, because, you know, even something like family dinners. Uh, families that have family dinners, the kids turn out better. Imagine that. Good studies show that. Uh, it's up to the parents to set the structure. The kids will not set their own structures. Uh, the, the mom and dad work as a unit to set the structure of the family. It's kind and loving to tell somebody to turn off their video game and go to bed or do their math homework is kind and loving. You're going to prepare them for something else. 
And don't you think we also have to, I mean, I value different families. I mean, we are a very diverse country. There are families, and you know, where there's one mom raising kids, one dad raising kids, a mom and dad, two dads, two moms, a grandmother and a grandfather. But all of these rules that or these, these kinds of qualities of healthy families can apply to all of those different kinds of families, those diverse families, because they're kind of like universal... I don't know if you call them universal truths, but showing love, respecting autonomy, boundaries, important for any of these families. Would you well, agree, I, I Susan? Think, yes, and I think a lot of what we're seeing is, you know, kind of diametrically opposed problems, like the one we were talking about earlier where the family is too possessive. And what we've also seen in this generation is the opposite, you know, is kind of with the latchkey kids where both parents are working and, and you know, a kid comes home from junior high school and nobody's home. And, you know, boy, you talk about a recipe for disaster, and we've seen that turn into disaster sort of over and over and over again. So, you know, what we keep focusing on in the book is balance. You know, kids have to have, they have to have structure, they have to have boundaries. They have to also have time to just be kids. You know, when we were growing up, back in, and we are baby boomers too, you know, we came home from school, and we went outside and played, you know, the parents were home, parents, moms were home, some dads were home, and we went outside and made up our own, you know, baseball kind of games. We we had time to do that and then come back in and do our homework. And when when the boundaries are too tight or when they're too loose, that's where kids really get into trouble. And, you know, again, you're talking about structuring time and also having some unstructured time, but that doesn't mean that that time is, is sort of unsupervised. Susan, now, maybe this is stating the obvious, but you and your brother collaborated and wrote this book together. So in your own family of origin, there must have been some good stuff going on because you guys now are still you're not only friends, but you're business partners, or you're writing this book together. So what do you think, and what happened in your own family that, um, maybe more specifically, that allowed you to, let's say, have this relationship with one another? Because it sounds like it's a really good one. Well, and it is. And we have been, actually, been, been close since childhood. And, you know, our family was not all the inherited. We had a mixed bag. We had our own stuff. One of the things that our parents made sure of was, again, that we had that structure and boundaries and that we had, you know, time to just be off on our own. But I always laugh. One of my mother was a stickler, and my dad too. Every single night, we sat down for a family supper. And every night, we went around the table and said, well, how was your day? What happened in your day? And I kind of laugh about this, too. We have a, an older brother named Don, and, and um, he was he was the introvert. He was the quiet one. And, we'd, you know, we'd come around the table to him, and he'd say nothing. And my parents would go, no, 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 you find us one thing. You had to tell one thing. And I think that was a big part of it. Our parents were very involved with us. But what do we do? And I'm going to ask Gary this question because I, I hear you, and I, you know, I had a similar growing up uh, experience as well. But in reality, that really, that kind of a structure situation doesn't really exist today. And we're maybe asking parents to do something that is, is well, you say, you know, and we're not a leave it to forget, leave it to Beaver. Uh, normal families, and I, and I think I'm quoting you, are more like the Twilight Zone. So if they're like the Twilight Zone, how do you deal with, you know? What do you do? Because the parents can't come home. It's not the 50s or even the 60s where you, 
every, somebody's coming home every night and having dinner. So in the context of what really exists today for different families, diverse families, diverse situations, diverse jobs, you know, what do you do? I think that's exactly right. In fact, I saw this statistic. It said only 11% of families have a dad that works and a mom that stays home. Everybody else is is something else. And uh, and that means a single-family home or you may have, uh, you know, the dad and a mom or mom and a dad or you may have a gay couple or there's all sorts of things. These principles apply to everyone. Now, you may not be able to have a family dinner every night. You know, uh, I see people get divorced. The mom's working two jobs. I hear these stories all the time. You, the, it's up to the parents go, what does this, what does this child need? Uh, this child's 11 years old, they're struggling in school, having problems with their peers, uh, dressing inappropriately. What does this child need from me? And you must create that. It will not create itself. And um, it just takes extra effort. And raising children takes effort. And the other part, and, and, and you can't say this uh, strongly enough, you must take your time to spend with your kids that on Saturday night or Sunday or something, you're not out on a date, you're there with your kids. You're trying to connect with them and trying to find out what's going on with them, have a human connection. So when you set a limit, they'll go, okay, they won't just rebel against a rational authority. Uh, and to throw back on something, too, it's funny. Uh, Susan and I are asked this a lot. Uh, it is funny because, uh, uh, you know, my, my, my dad, my two older brothers, my, both my brothers were kind of child geniuses. They're good athletes. I just wanted to be like them. And my sister kept going, Gary, come play with me. And she was writing stories, and it had a whole other world. And she and she also introduced me to the uh, to her world. And we became we've been friends our whole life. We've always been friends. I, I can uh, see that. I can hear that as I'm talking to the two of you. You know, I was thinking about what you did, and the the point that you made right before that. I think is really important. I'm kind of identifying with uh, with the point that you made. I mean, I have was divorced and. My kids saw their father all the time, and they lived with me primarily, but it was a constant, it was a back and forth. But one of the rules, and I'm thinking about this, and I, it, that was really important when the kids were home, I never went out. They were here with me, and they, when they were with their dad, that's when I went out. Because, you know, but exactly. it, so I always said no, no, no to anything when my kids were with me. And, you know, it made such a huge difference. And he did the same. And I think yeah. that today people don't want to, they want to do it all. So you can't do it all. So you've chosen, you know, you go through a divorce, then you have to make, you have to restrict yourself as a parent. I think that's really important. So I, I really wanted to make that point. You see, Catherine, that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly it because what you did was take your unique situation and you knew the parameters of it and you knew what your children needed and you created a situation and a scenario where it worked for all of you. Yeah, that's the whole point. So give us another part of it. Another part of it too, by the way, is that even though you're divorced, you still co-parent. I talk to people about this all the time. Do couples work? Go. I can't stand this person. I don't ever want to see him out divorcing. Wait a minute. Your children are going to outlive you. You will be co-parenting with this person the rest of your life. So don't do some nuclear divorce here where you try to strike back and and hurt this person for all the hurts they've caused you. Uh, Co-parenting with an ex is hard work. It takes energy. And you have to talk to them all the time. You must do that because you have these kids. They didn't have to be born. You have them. It takes energy. It takes energy, as you say, and it takes discipline. It, it takes yes. some discipline. You just can't have it all. 
you know, maybe you, part of what you get is you don't have to be with this person for the rest of your life, but then you, your children are with you for the rest of your life. And if you do it the way I described it, not that everybody has to do it that way, then the kids are always with a parent because exactly. it is the same thing. Yes, exactly. And a good consistency, and that's what they need because uh, the whole yeah. focus is the child's needs don't change just because you're divorced. Uh, you must create uh, the structure they need regardless of what's happened to you and if you're divorced or how your family, who's in your family. So we have a couple minutes left. Tell me, like, maybe give me an example. I, I always like these examples because we are talking, we talk, you know, there is the parents who are together, who are whatever the makeup of the parents are, and then you have divorces. What other kinds of situations or maybe, Gary, like unique situations that you've had to help parents um, or deal with in terms of being able to be a healthy family in the context of not being mom and dad and the 2.2 kids. Well, and, and really, you know, I, I still do a, a broad range of work. I've always liked that, even though I'm, a, I'm an analyst. I don't just sit in my office and see people one-on-one. I work in hospitals. I see every type of family, highly dysfunctional families. And uh, the, the one of the, the, the parents may have uh, alcoholism or schizophrenia or bipolar or be severe sexual trauma. Or I, I see returning veterans. And so what we're always trying to do is, uh, and, 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 and these people love their children. We have to talk about how to help neutralize their illness or their conflicts with their couple to create their best family. Um, you know, I, I, gosh, I had a guy I saw for many years. He died last year. He had, uh, he had severe schizophrenia and very sensitive. And uh, whenever something went out of control in his life, had to be hospitalized. Uh, and he had two children. And we've spent a lot of our time talking about he wanted to go to the football game and look like the other parents. Oh. And um, wanted to, he, he'd come and go, um, my son is having um, uh, these issues at school. Uh, what do I do? I go, well, look, you want to go talk to the principal. And he would be paranoid. And we talk about how to overcome that. Uh, everybody wants, you know, when we all die, we're going to judge ourselves by how we parented. Uh, everybody wants to do that well. And so that's a, a, a what uh, I spend a lot of time, anyone who has children, we talk about their personal issues. You know, are you parenting as best as you can? That's your legacy on this planet. Are you doing what you need to do for your kids? Everybody wants to do that. And it's a, by the way, it's always, a, as you know, a hook in treatment. People come in for alcoholism and are struggling whether they get sober. Go, what legacy do you want your family? You know, uh, do you want to be the alcoholic that dies and the butts of jokes at, at Christmas, or do you want to be someone who actually has a positive impact and has some impact to the generations? It's an ongoing part of treatment every time I see someone. You know, you mentioned another kind of family, which actually I think I'm going to have in a couple of weeks, I think, a show on this, military wives and, and women who are raising kids, uh, you know, by themselves and their husbands are in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever they are, and that's a whole other group of families, I think, that there are numerous problems, and I assume that you've been, that you do deal with, with some of those kinds of families as well? Oh, yes. Uh, and actually, you know, what happens, I, I saw one statistic, I, uh, you'll, I'm sure you've seen this, that the most likely couple get, couple get divorced is the, uh, 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 a, uh, a captain of a submarine who's <laughs> gone for six months and incommunicado and returns home whose wife's taken charge and uh, the captain's used to being in charge and they clash. Those are very difficult because the wife has to step up and do everything and you have somebody come back home who's used to being in charge themselves. And at this point, all these kids coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq are, are emotionally quite damaged. I don't know how many of you have seen because there's no, there's no front and there's no rear. It's, it's constant stress, uh, constant fear. 
Uh, you know, I've seen I've seen veterans from every war back to World War uh, Two, and and, uh, and uh, the the people in this war, are, all, everybody comes back with PTSD because you, you, you cannot. There's no safe zone. There's no sanctuary there. That's a whole other show that we can do together. We have to say goodbye because I'm really, oh. you know, I find it fascinating, both of you. And uh, I want to mention your book again because you can buy the book online, I guess, bookstores everywhere. What is wrong with my family? Dr. Gary Malone and his sister, author Susan Mary Malone. It has really been great talking to you guys today. Thank you, Catherine. We had a wonderful time. Thank yes, you. Thank you very much. And, we, and again, we have uh, www.whatswrongwithmyfamily.com or Amazon or any ebook outlet, and uh, it's a great book. So, and great. thank you for having us here. Yes, whatswrongwithmyfamily.com. That's the website you can go to. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety.